0: Thank you, everyone, for being here. You know, last service, Levi introduced me, saying, I don't know if he can do this. So his confidence is way raised after seeing me do it once. (laughs) We are doing a series on great men and women of faith throughout the Old Testament. And we've gone through all kinds of men and women to this point. I had the honor of starting us with Abraham. And we're all the way at Daniel now. Daniel is a really interesting book because we're getting to the point in history where we can actually nail down some time. We've got guesses on when things happened around Abraham time, but that's a long time ago. We don't have a lot of documentation back to then. But we have documents outside of Scripture from Daniel's time. We've got a good idea when wars happen, when things happen. And it makes Daniel really interesting. We're going to be going through... The entire book, as Levi said, going to be going through some of the history and prophecies of Daniel. And, yeah, the prophecies get really interesting when we know more about the time frames. And they can give us a lot of confidence in Jesus being the Messiah. We're going to touch on that. Let's just start out at the beginning. We're going to be diving in right at chapter 1. And so we begin with... The israelites being taken into exile in babylon and the nation of israel had split in two it became the northern tribes and the southern tribes the northern tribes fell to babylon then eventually in 605 bc the southern tribes fell to babylon and king nebuchadnezzar king of babylon at that time declared go into this nation of judah and take the young men from there, and I'm going to select men to be wise men and be educated and enter my personal service. And immediately, when we see these young men brought into Babylon, we see King Nebuchadnezzar trying to strip them of their identities in God. And Daniel is a fascinating person because he's one of the only people who we have an extended portion of scripture on where we don't really have anything negative said about him. He's actually called a man of high esteem by an angel, which is crazy. Yeah, right? Uh, so Daniel was fascinating to study as an example of how to live righteously in Babylon. And if anyone will remember my sermon from January 1st of this year about Revelation, we live in Babylon now. We live in a land of oppression now. If we're looking at imagery used in the book of Revelation, they talk about Babylon in metaphorical terms, and it pretty well describes the United States of America and a lot of places in the world. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, we have a video archive. Go and watch my January 1st sermon. But Daniel and his friends are brought into Babylon. We see Nebuchadnezzar stripping them of their identity in God. Let's pick up at Daniel 1. We're going to read 6 and 7. Now, among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. This seems like not that big of a deal on first blush. I don't know if any of you have taken any language classes or gone traveling somewhere, but your name might be pronounced differently, or you might even get a new name assigned to you. I know when I took Spanish in high school, my name was Bruno in that class. Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't go by Brian. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but there's something nastier going on. Daniel, his name in Hebrew means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yah has been gracious, Yah being short for Yahweh. Mishael means who is what God is, and Azariah means Yah has helped. Now I imagine one or two of you at least have children, and when you named your child, you wanted to give them something, a name that mattered, that had meaning. And when we look at these ancient Hebrew names, They are literal. If you hear someone's name, you know what their name means. They're smushing words together. So their names had profound impact on who they were. Now they're renamed in Babylon. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, which means Bel will protect. Bel is another name for Marduk. That's like the pet name for the god Marduk in their time. And so that is the chief god of Babylon. Daniel was given this, in their eyes, place of honor, being named after their chief god. So Daniel must have stood out right from the start. Shadrach means inspired of Aku. Aku is the moon god of Babylon. Meshach means belonging to Aku. Abednego actually is really interesting. So Abed means servant of. And Nego is the god, so servant of Nego. We don't know, and we might just not have found it yet, of any god in Babylon called Nego. But there is a god in Babylon called Nebo, which is Lucifer. They had worship dedicated to Lucifer. So it is believed amongst scholars that he was actually named Abed-Nebo, and the Hebrew scribes were so offended by this that in a little act of defiance, they changed one letter just to make it more palatable for them to write Servant of Lucifer with, I don't know, Lucimer maybe would be our English example. What's really interesting about this is we don't see any objection. Daniel and his friends, they don't say anything about being called these different names. Where we actually see objections is what comes immediately next they will let them call, be called by whatever names the Babylonian wants, but they refuse to violate God's commands. So in verse 8, it says, but, notice that but there, something's different about this line than the last line. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Defile is a special word. That's referring specifically to violating God's command, that he would become impure. So there's something, we don't know what about this food and wine that is not honorable to God. Either it was shrimp and pork, things that Jews aren't supposed to eat under Torah law, or it was, you know, sacrificed to their gods. There's something wrong with it. And Daniel cut, draws a line there. And the way he draws the line is really interesting. I think we can learn a lot from it. He goes to the official of Babylon, and he says, give me permission to eat under Torah law, to eat vegetables and water. Let me prove to you that my God's way is better than what you're trying to do. And the official is, at first says no, and you're going to be, sickly compared to the other youths, and Nebuchadnezzar's is going to come after me. And Daniel says, just give me one week. Let me prove it to you in one week. And at the end of that week, they're healthier than everyone else. So, let's pull some lessons from this chapter one about how to live righteously in Babylon. The first thing I take from this is choose your battles wisely. The second thing I take from this is don't defile yourself. So, Daniel and his friends, they say, you can call me whatever you want. See, that just offends me. I'm sure we've all had nicknames that we don't love. Bruno is a good example for me. And they say, go ahead and call us what you want. That's not what defines us. We know where where our identity lies. But where they draw the line is, what's going to offend God? What was God's instruction? Because I'm not violating that. So I'd encourage you, if something offends you, maybe decide if that's worth battling for. Maybe let that roll off your back and figure out what offends God and draw the line on those things. And the way Daniel and his friends draw the line is really important. You see, they peacefully demonstrate that God's way is better. And I think we Christians oftentimes argue God's way is better, and I don't know that that's winning winning. Most of the time when we argue about things, we just become entrenched in our own values more. Now there are some people who are listening. I'm not saying there's no point in arguing, obviously. Paul and his friends do that and go and present and are compelling. But we tend to jump down people's throats. And it's stupid because we're called to be a city on a hill. We're called to live and people will see they'll see something different in us. Jesus puts it like this, taste and see that I am good. If we're living our lives in a way that is true to what God wants of us, it's going to be attractive. And that's what people will see, and that's where they're going to ask what's different about that person, because I want some of whatever they've got. Let's keep moving on. Chapter 2. We show Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And for those who want further study in this section, I'd encourage you, this chapter 2 is parallel to Genesis 41. Uh, Daniel and Joseph is another person where we don't really have anything bad said about them, and they are compared in this section, so go and get out your your paper and make a chart. It's very interesting. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, and he's troubled by it, and... He calls all the babylonian wise men the magicians the spiritual counselors and says tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation of it now the interpreting part was pretty easy because they could just make stuff up but nebuchadnezzar has caught on to their schemes and he says no you have to tell me what my dream was first of course they can't do this and nebuchadnezzar declares well all you fakes i'm just going to kill you all and we're going to be done with this. If you can't interpret my dream, you're not real. Daniel, this becomes a major problem for because he's a wise man now. He's been educated. So he's going to be killed amongst these people. And how we see Daniel respond to this is fascinating. He just goes and declares. He declares, I'm going to give you an interpretation of the dream. Give me 24 hours and I'll come back. And he and his friends go and they pray to God, and they say to God, You are compassionate. Please reveal this dream to us. I don't know about you, but if my neck's on the line, if I'm about to die, I don't know that my prayer is going to sound like that. I think I'm going to be more focused on what's going on with me than on God's compassion. But this is really important because if we jump back to Exodus 34.6, they're at Mount Sinai, and God gives us five traits for himself. It says the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in what I'd translate as loyal love and truth. So Daniel is using God's own words about his character to appeal to him for safety, saying you are compassionate. Please show compassion on us, not because we're worth it, but because that is your character. And we can learn a great Daniel has provided this dream interpretation. He's shown what it is, and he goes before Nebuchadnezzar. And before he tells him the dream, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason I know this is because my God, the only real God, not the fake gods or petty gods of your people, gave this to me. And that's why I can share it with you today. So our instruction list for how to live righteously in Babylon I think, can be broken down to something like this. Trust, seek, receive, proclaim, and share. Daniel, he trusts that God will provide. Then he seeks God's provision, and he seeks God's provision in alignment with God's character. If you're seeking God's provision for something that's not in alignment with God's character or something that's not honorable, yeah, you're probably not going to be provided to. But Daniel, he's seeking the right thing here, and God chooses, I'm going to provide that. Then Daniel goes, and before he does anything else, he declares, this is from God. The only reason I have this is because it is from Yahweh. And then he shares it with people who don't deserve it. I think we can learn some important lessons from this. What has God given to you? Do you have a home? Do you have food? Do you have clothes? There are a lot of people who don't. And if you can share with them, go and proclaim, this is from God. God gave this to me, and now I want you to have it. All right, we're going to keep blazing along. I've only got 30 minutes. So chapters three and six, we're going to conquer together. These are similar storylines in these chapters. So in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up a golden image of himself, and he demands everyone in Babylon needs to worship this. In chapter 6, Darius the Mede makes a law that says everyone can only worship me for 1 month. Now in chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they won't worship the idol. And they're cast to certain death in a fiery furnace, but they're preserved. And God's glory is proclaimed. In chapter 6, Daniel, he continues worshiping Yahweh. He He won't worship Darius. And he is cast from the lion's den to certain death. But he's preserved and God's glory is proclaimed. Something really interesting that I learned in doing this study. Every time I've seen a picture of Daniel in the lion's den, he's a boy. He's a kid. And that, you know, it makes sense. We're we're told in chapter 1 these are youths coming in. But as I mentioned at the start, we have a good chronology in Daniel. And because Darius the Mede was in power at that time, we know when Babylon fell and was under the reign of Darius. And so Daniel would have been about 80 years old. He had chose to live righteously day after day after day after day. To the point that he was prepared when he was thrown into the lion's den to continue living righteously. And So my takeaway from this section, and I think this is the key to the entire book of Daniel, is continue worshipping Yahweh even when it means death. We're going through the historical section right now, that's chapters 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump into the prophecies in a minute. But... I think we're given these two together, this history and this example of Daniel, so that when we face death because we serve Christ, we will be prepared for it. When those prophecies come true, we will think back to the example of Daniel. Now, I've shared this, my notes, and talked this over with a lot of other Bible nerds. I say that affectionately. And I had someone tell me, this is not going to This is not going to impact 21st century United States citizens and modern Americans that choose to worship Yahweh even when it means death. And I think that's right in a way, but it's also terrifying that we have gotten so comfortable that the reality that we will face death for this is something we can't even fathom and apply to our own lives. If we live long enough, it's going to happen we'll talk about prophecy in a few minutes but there are people dying around the world don't get too comfortable the way i think we can make this applicable to our daily lives today is choosing yahweh in the face of our petty little things that are happening in our lives well and they seem they can still be challenges i don't mean to make it sound like we're going through petty things but If you can't proclaim God's glory to your family who aren't Christians, if you can't proclaim God's glory to people of other religions, if you can't proclaim it to your legislators, if you can't proclaim it to your gay and lesbian friends who might have been burned by Christians in the past, how are you going to proclaim it when a machete is to your neck? Start practicing now. Start practicing now so that when you are in the face of death, you will be prepared and you will be ready to proclaim Yahweh as king. Remember, Daniel and his friends, our ultimate example is they're preserved. They are saved by the glory and grace and compassion of God. Remember them. All right, chapters 4 and 5. These two chapters show Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar engaging in prideful acts Belshazzar, he doesn't humble himself, and he is killed that very night. Nebuchadnezzar is given a period of seven years, and he eventually humbles himself before God. Just for a little more context, so we all know what we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he goes on top of a building and he says, I built all of Babylon, and God reminds him no, no, that's not exactly what happened. Belshazzar, his son, he has a big party, and he takes the, the implements of Yahweh's temple, his drinking vessels, and uses them to serve his dinner guests in a party honoring himself, and is killed that very night. So, what I take away from this is Nebuchadnezzar, he goes, and he's a beast in a field for years, and then he turns and observes Yahweh, and is brought back up to his position He's reclaimed by God and given back his status. What we need to remember is that even the heart of the king of the oppressive land, the heart of the king of Babylon, can be turned to God. I think we forget that a lot. I hear a lot of talk about politics and a lot of talk about how terrible our leaders are by people. I don't hear a lot of people saying, remember the chapter in our Bible? that's written by the king of Babylon? What if we get our president to be like Nebuchadnezzar? What if we are that much a city on a hill that our leadership changes? Remember, we can turn the hearts even of the kings of our countries. All right, we made it through the histories. So we're diving into prophecy now. And... We're going to focus on two prophetic sections here. There's a lot of prophecy in this book, and there are a lot of different theories on what it means. And it's a lot about wars and different kings that have been in power throughout history. It's very interesting, but frankly, it's mostly conjecture. We're doing guesswork. So I want to focus in on prophecies that relate to Christ. Let's read together Daniel 7 9 through 14. I'm going to read a really big section because I just think this section of scripture is so cool. We're looking in on three words here. I'll tell you what they are, but see if you can pull them out and figure out what I'm talking about. (laughs) I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him the court sat and the books were open then i kept looking because of the sound of boastful words which the horn was speaking i kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire a quick aside we are it's made apparent in Um, in prophetic sections by revelation of angels, that the horn is a king of a nation, the beast is the nation itself. So when we see horns and beasts, that's a, a ruler, a king, and then the nation around them. As for the rest of the beasts, so the rest of these oppressive nations, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The person that these passages are alluding to is Jesus Christ. And he proclaimed this himself. That title, Son of Man, is given to this Messiah figure. And Messiah, Daniel is the only place in the Old Testament where the word Messiah is used. We're told this Son of Man will be the one to come back and be, be God and So the reason this is important is because jesus claimed this title repeatedly during his lifetime there are a lot of of different religions that say oh jesus was merely an angel or he's an important figure but he's not god and he never claimed himself to be god is what i have been told by people of these religions and they're wrong every time that jesus calls himself the son of man that is a direct claim i am divine i am This happens over and over and over and over again, and I'm going to run quickly through a bunch of examples of this in the New Testament. Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nonetheless, I will tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And coming on the clouds of heaven mark 13 26 then they will see the son of man coming <coughs> in clouds with great power and glory mark 14 22 and jesus said i am and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven that's an important one because i am is the name of yahweh saying i am oh by the way i'm the messiah too i am the son of Luke 21, 27, then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. My personal favorite of this list, John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. Jesus was killed for a reason. He was coming proclaiming, I'm that person, I am the Messiah, and the leaders of Israel didn't like it. All right, just want everyone, every time they read Son of Man in the New Testament, to pop back to this Daniel passage and know that's what he's talking about. Every time he's using that title, it's about divinity. It's about being a claim to be God. We're going to shift to the last prophetic section we're going to touch on. And this is one where you're going to get some of my personal interpretations and opinions on this passage. And this is dealing with things yet to come and some things that have passed. So we'll look at the things that have passed. And as for the things that are yet to come, I have been told wise words by our Pastor Levi. He says many wise words. Thank you. He says... Prophecy is primarily for hindsight, not for foresight. So that we can look back and see what God did and proclaim God's glory. Not always so we can understand everything perfectly. However, in the very passage we're going to read, it says that we're given these things so that we can know and discern what's coming. So I think failing to study them is a mistake. I don't want to shy away from that. But I also want to declare I am a human being, and I might be wrong. I've been wrong many times in my life. So I want to share with you what I'm getting from this, and encourage you to read it yourself. Make your own opinions. But It'll be interesting nonetheless. So we are diving in at Chapter 9. We're going to read 24 through 27. I'm going to walk through this pretty slowly and just break it down as we go. So Gabriel is giving information to Daniel here. And he says to him, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. A couple things out of this section. Your people, your holy city. Daniel is the audience here. So your people are the Jews. Your holy city is Jerusalem. So 70 weeks have been decreed to deal with the Jews. Now, 70 weeks is confusing. I I won't go as far as to say it's a poor translation, but in English, it just doesn't have the impact that it would in Hebrew. 70 is straightforward. There are 70, but weeks is a word shebuah. And what it means is a set of seven. A week is a set of seven there are seven days in a week that makes perfect sense so weeks isn't wrong but history has indicated to us that this is actually 70 sabbath cycles that also is a set of seven and i'll explain my rationale for that but just go with me for now and if you're not convinced by the end of this that's fine so 70 sabbath cycles have been decreed for Daniel's people, and Daniel's holy city, the Israelites and the Jews, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, righteousness, excuse me, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks. So, that's our first time period. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be a period of seven weeks. And this seven weeks is going to be dedicated to rebuilding, we're told in the next section, and 62 weeks, we're coming to that next. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we have this seven-week period, or the seven Sabbath cycle period, where Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. And history has proven this literal and correct. Jerusalem, we are told in the book of John, took seven Sabbath cycles to rebuild. There are numerous other places in historical texts where we are told that rebuilding Jerusalem took a set of seven Sabbath cycles. Now that's important, because that indicates to me that this section of scripture is literal. After I gave my revelation sermon on numbers in scripture, I had a lot of people come up and ask me, well, are those all metaphorical or are they literal numbers? And I said, I don't know. The, no, I, I talked with them more than that. <laughs> but I think in this instance that these are literal. Because the rebuilding of the temple took seven Sabbath cycles. I don't see any reason why the other portions wouldn't be literal. So, we've got seven weeks out of these 70 weeks that the temple will be rebuilt. Then we have, it's starting in 26, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. So, we have a 62 Sabbath cycle period, until messiah the prince comes now that'd be 434 years and there are arguments about whether jesus is the messiah based on this time period and i think it's it's good to think about it and argue it but as i mentioned before we don't know who this decree was issued by we have three written decrees i'm sure there were decrees that weren't written this might have been a heavenly decree What does it mean for the messiah to be cut off there are different arguments about what that means is this the messiah being cut off from the kingdom of heaven and coming and being a baby here is this the messiah dying a lot of people argue it's the messiah engaging in his public ministry when he was baptized and went out from there i don't i don't understand the rationale behind that one but what i'm getting at is there are lots of different theories about what this means No matter how i calculate those 434 years it falls during jesus's lifetime jesus's claim to be messiah is backed by this section of scripture in that 62 week or sabbath cycle time period what i really want to get into is this very last section because this tells us what we can expect to come if you're really good at math or maybe not even really good at math it's 62 plus 7 There's 70 weeks total. We've used up 69 weeks. So we've got one week left in this prophecy. Remember, this prophecy is about God's dealing with the Jews. So it seems when Jesus Christ came on the scene to spread the word to the Gentiles, that this dealing with Israel was put on pause. How God dealt with the rest of us. Moving into this last week's section. So we have... I'm gonna start again at 26. After 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Then we transition. And the people of the prince who is to come, this is a new prince. This is who we refer to as the Antichrist. He will come and will destroy the city and sanctuary. So his people are gonna destroy the city and sanctuary that happened in 70 AD. So that prophecy has been fulfilled. And its end will come with a flood Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. This next part is where my personal opinion comes in more. And he, the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Remember, one week is one Sabbath cycle. So the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with many. We're dealing with the Israelites, so many Israelites. The Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the Jewish people for a series of seven years. It is my opinion, and again I could be wrong, that the Jewish people, or at least a portion of the Jewish nation, will accept the Antichrist as this coming Son of Man. That they will accept him as the Messiah to come. I think this is why Jesus says in the book of John, I come in the power of God, but when another comes in his own name, you will accept him, even though you don't accept So the Jews, if I am right, will make a covenant with who they believe to be the Messiah. They will accept him as the Messiah. Reading on, it says, In the middle of the week, the Antichrist will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So, middle of the week. This is an important period of time. If you'll remember from my sermon on Numbers, Seven is the number of completeness. Three and a half is the number of deception and desolation and destruction. So in the middle of the week, the Antichrist is going to put a stop to sacrificing grain offerings. This is interesting because that means for three and a half years, the Antichrist was making sacrifice and grain offerings. He's gonna come, he's going to make alliances between nations. He's going to walk and talk and act like the Christ. These Jews are going to have reason to believe he's the Messiah. But at the end of that three-and-a-half-year period, we're told on the wings of abominations will become one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It is my opinion, and I think what we should be watching for, is the Jews accepting a Messiah. They rejected Christ, accepting someone else as this coming Son of Man. I think that's when we know stuff's about to go down. (laughs) Now, Daniel, after he received this message, he was greatly disturbed. And I don't know how the rest of you are feeling, but I know we are all uncomfortable talking about a lot of these things. And I didn't wanna shy away from them. I have shared with some of the friends here, in preparing for this sermon, I have had more spiritual attacks than I have received in a long time. And that tells me I'm doing something right, frankly. That tells me, keep pushing down, down this path. Because a lot of people shy away from touching on these kind of things, I don't wanna be that person. I wanna give you the same encouragement that Daniel receives from the angel. Daniel is told in Daniel 10, 19, he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you, take courage, and be courageous. Daniel can be courageous because Jesus came. Jesus conquered. And we are going to see Jesus come again. I want to end reading out of Revelation and looking just towards the imagery around Christ and why we can take courage. In Revelation 1, 12 through 16, it says, "'Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, "'and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. "'And in the middle of the lampstands, "'I saw one like a son of man.' "'He was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet "'and girded across his chest with a golden sash, His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. That is the God we serve. That is the reason why we can take courage. That is the reason why we can live righteously in Babylon today and prepare ourselves for the time where we will likely die for his name. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to pray over all of us. Lord, we love you. I pray for courage. I pray for strength. God, I pray a blessing over all of these people. I pray that they will be bold in your name in the midst of Babylon. That they would live righteously, that they would choose to worship and honor you in their every step, in their every interaction, that they would be a city on a hill, that people would see them and want to taste what they are tasting, want to see what they are seeing. And I pray, God, for a blessing over them to share their provision. It's so easy for us to just want to hold on to the things of this world that you have given to us. But this is all yours. Help us to be generous. Help us to share and proclaim your name here in the midst of this place. We love you, Lord. Please be with us this week. Amen. All right. If you'll all rise, I'm going to read a benediction over you. Go forth with peace and courage. Choose to live righteously. Choose to follow Yahweh, even in the midst of battle. Amen. Go in peace.